Welcome to Books Sandwiched In. I'm Maggie Carini with the Friends of the Library. Today we welcome Knoxville City Councilman Marshall Stair. Councilman Stair is a civil litigation attorney at the law firm of Lewis, Thomason, King, Krieg, and Waldrop, and a member of City Council since 2011. While serving on council, Stair has been a strong advocate for quality development by pushing to update the zoning code, reduce commercial sign clutter, improve transit, and promote walkable communities. Stair serves on the boards of Appalachian Mountain Bike Club, Knoxville Symphony Orchestra, Legacy Parks Foundation, and is also a member of the Bijou Facilities Committee and the Bike Walk Advisory Committee. Stair and his wife, Natalie, live in Old North Knoxville with their daughter, Stella, and dog, Queenie. Stair will now discuss the color of law, a forgotten history of how our government segregated America by Richard Rothstein. Thank you. Take it away. Thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction. Of course, uh, I think I wrote it, so uh, I guess it should be, it, sh it should be good. This is the, uh, my second uh, book review, and uh, the first one I did was, I was asked by somebody to do it, but this one, uh, I actually reached out to the library to do it. Uh, when you serve on council, you, you wrestle a lot with the zoning code. And serving on council, I really realized that our zoning code was outdated. It really wasn't prepared to do the type of development that the community wanted. And so a lot of us on council and the administration thought it was time to update the zoning code. And as we started to do that, I started hearing feedback that uh, you know zoning, zoning had been used for segregation and for these type of purposes. And I wasn't aware of it. And actually a friend, John Craig, he said, well, you need to read uh, this book, Color of Law. And I bought the book, and even before I read it, I reached out and said, this would be a good way to have a community discussion about zoning and some of the issues raised in the book. But um, the book is The Color of Law. It was published in 2017, so it's a relatively new book. It's sort of making a lot of waves. There's been a number of book reviews by New York Times, NPR, so it's it's getting a lot of traction. And when I do a book review, I, I really don't know what to do. And really a good way to learn how to talk about a book, I find, is just go on YouTube and watch the author talk about it. And so I d I've done that the last few days, and it was interesting to hear uh, him talk about it and sort of, uh, you sort of get the purpose of why he wrote this book. The author is Richard Rothstein. He works at the Economic Policy Institute, so he's an economist. And he was involved in education work. There was a 2000 Supreme Court case involving the K-12 schools in Seattle. In that case, in Rothstein and his interviews really emphasized this. It was a modest program, uh, but essentially students were allowed to choose. And if there was a few spaces, uh, the school was using race. You know, so if it was overly represented by African Americans, a white student could get in. In reverse, if, if the school was overly represented by white students, a black uh, student would get in, you know, for those last few spots. So it was a, he emphasized it was a modest program. It was challenged. The Supreme Court struck it down. And in doing so, uh, Chief Justice Roberts stated he, he observed that the racially separate neighborhoods might result from uh, societal discrimination, but that said that uh, remedying discrimination, quote, not traceable to government's own action 
can never justify constitutionally acceptable racially conscious remedy. The distinction between segregation by state action and racial imbalance caused by other factors has been central to our jurisprudence. Where racial imbalance is a product not of state action, but of private choices, it does not have constitutional implications. Because the neighborhoods in Louisville and Seattle had been segregated by private choices, he concluded, school districts should, should be prohibited from taking purposeful action to reverse their own resulting segregation. What Chief Justice Roberts is saying is that this segregation just sort of happened on its own. Um, he calls it de facto segregation. Rothstein doesn't disagree with the jurisprudence of Justice Roberts. What he really disagrees with is that he got the facts wrong. The government had been involved in segregating cities, and so he set out to do research about different government action, and you can tell it's almost a legal argument. Throughout the book, he uses de facto and de jure, de jure being government and de facto being you know, sort of happens on its own private choices. He uses those, I mean, throughout the book. Uh, but he also talks about a case from 1974. It was a 5-4 decision. And there, uh, the city of Detroit, uh, they're working to desegregate the schools. But the city had such a concentration of African Americans, they wanted to reach out into the suburbs that were different political organizations to help integrate the schools. And there, the justices sort of said the same thing that Chief Justice Roberts says. And Rosting is, is really upset with this because at the trial court level, there was evidence put on of government action to segregate the country. He uses different examples from all the country, but he does a lot in California. And I think one reason he does that is because that's where he's living, so it's sort of easier to do research where you live. Uh, but also because, you know, the, California has such a progressive, and it's in the Bay Area, such a progressive reputation that he thought, well, we can show what was happening here, then it's, it's a lot easier to sort of say what's happening in other places. The other reason why is that he really wanted to show a place that didn't have a real long history of racism and segregation. And there weren't, and then California, there weren't a lot of African Americans before World War II. And essentially his book is just chapter by chapter as examples of different things uh, the government has done. One of the first thing he talks about is public housing. He emphasizes it was originally uh, not a subsidized program. It was, it was meant to address a shortage, but most of the residents paid you know, fairly close to market rate rent. It was for white families. And then it first became subsidized around World War II, around the facilities that were doing projects to support the war effort. And African Americans were excluded from that. He didn't give many examples from Tennessee, but uh, he starts to talk about the New Deal when it began to expand. And he, he does mention TVA in Norris. And he said there was a model village built, 500 ohms, and it was for whites only, something I wasn't aware of just 30 minutes away. The African-Americans working on the projects were uh, located in shoddy barracks. This continued the Public Works Administration, uh, really beefed up public housing, and he talks about the first uh, 47 projects were completely segregated, 30 for white, 17 for African-Americans. And he said some of them, cities were already somewhat segregated, like 
Miami and Birmingham and the African-American uh, developments went into those segregated areas. He gives one example where Atlanta, where there was an integrated area, uh, which was demolished. It was one-third African-American. It was demolished. It was replaced with the whites-only public housing. So his point is uh, the government, through public housing, further segregated the country in some places where there was some integration. One of the more interesting parts of this sort of public housing debate happened in the Truman administration. Truman wanted to beef up the public housing program. The Republicans at the time were against it. Are people familiar with the concept of a poison pill amendment? It's essentially when you propose an amendment that you think you can get passed, but once attached to the main bill, it would cause it to be defeated. The Republicans introduced a poison pill to mandate that uh, public housing be integrated. And this put progressives at the time in a very difficult position because they knew once the final bill came up for a vote that the Republicans were going to vote against it because they, they didn't believe that the government should be in housing for economic reasons. But they knew if it was integrated, the Southern Democrats would have to vote against it as well. So it was somebody from Minnesota and somebody from Illinois, Hubert Humphrey, I'm sorry, uh, ended up speaking against the, the poison pill, uh, which was very awkward. The leader of the NAACP actually ended up being against it and just said it, that the right thing to do was for it to be integrated, and without it, it wasn't worth it. So there was some uh, debate there, but uh, it's a really interesting example of sort of the state of the country in uh, 19, I think it was in 1948. Under Eisenhower, the head of housing and finance, and he was president when Brown versus Board of Education came down, integrating schools, he flat out said, this doesn't apply to housing. He didn't enforce it. So I thought the, that those examples on public housing were very strong. And then he goes into zoning. He first talks about examples of uh, racial zoning, where laws were put in place. The first one was in Baltimore which essentially said you couldn't sell to an African-American your property. Those were adopted by a lot of cities, but it was challenged in 1917. And it was struck down in Buchanan versus uh, Warley. Rothstein really emphasizes the constitutional aspect and the 13th Amendment. And most people think of the 13th Amendment, you know, abolishes slavery. But he says it's also important as any relic of slavery and it's clear from later jurisprudence, you know, not being able to buy property, these things essentially create second-class citizenship, which is a relic of slavery and therefore unconstitutional. But in talking about the Buchanan case, he thought it might have been struck down because of the constitutional problems, but it was essentially struck down on a property rights argument. The court at the time was very, I guess, sort of business-friendly. And the idea that you couldn't sell your property to whoever you wanted didn't seem appropriate. So it was struck down in 1917. Interestingly, cities found ways around it. There were laws against interracial marriage, so it was essentially you couldn't live or buy property unless you could marry somebody on the street. And sort of bizarre uh, examples. Um, Birmingham uh, continued with its till 1950. Uh, an interesting example, West Palm Beach in Florida adopted it in 1929, which was 12 years after it had been struck down, and kept it until 1960. Rothstein's argument is once this sort of foundation set out, 
both federal and local leaders wanted a way to segregate the country. And so it's sort of a two-pronged approach. And the first one of this was exclusionary zoning. Now, when I say exclusionary zoning, do people know what I mean by that? So he talks about racial zoning. Exclusionary zoning is what we have now. It was a separation of the uses. So you'd have residential, industrial, commercial, office, all separate. So before really the early 20th century, you know, downtown wasn't developed under any type of zoning code. And I didn't know this, but they were pushed, you know, by the federal government. One administration that had pushed it was Harding, and the committee was full of segregationists. Essentially, it, it laid the foundation for really how cities grew throughout the 20th century. They're racially neutral on their face, and we, we still have them today. I think almost every city in the country basically has an exclusionary zoning code. I mean, that's sort of the, the base. Uh, but it was sort of a two-pronged approach because you had that that was racially neutral, but you still, I mean, so how do you achieve uh, segregation? And part of that was through deed restrictions. These are restrictions you can put in your deed that restricts future owners of what they can do with the property. So sometimes you hear you know, people put uh, restrictions for environmental purposes. If you have a nice piece of property you don't want developed, you can put a restriction in. It was fairly common you could put restrictions in on who could buy the property. And it, was, it said you can't sell this property to African Americans. There was others included in that, sometimes uh, Jews or, or Hispanics. So you had sort of a two-prong approach. Restrictive covenants, it's interesting. There was one even by Boeing aircraft outside of Seattle. So places, you know, you don't think of as having sort of the struggles of segregation. It was supported uh, by the government. The FHA manual, which I'll get into in a second, supported them. But interestingly, they were eventually struck down by the Supreme Court in 1948. In a case, Shelley versus Kramer, it's unconstitutional, creates a second-class citizenship violation of the 13th and 14th Amendment. It was unanimous by the Supreme Court, and the decision was six to zero. Does anybody recognize a problem with that? <laughs> anybody want to guess what, what happened with the other three justices? They lived in homes with racial restrictions over their own houses, so they felt that they couldn't partake in the decision. So I think that kind of gives you a sense that these were you know, fairly common at least amongst the Supreme Court. So <clears throat> the, the next, and, and really I think where he gets sort of into the meat of the argument, comes to the FHA, and he talks about the push to own your own home. And he said this started under Hoover, and there, there was a big push. Previous to that, I guess that home ownership wasn't particularly common. It was difficult to get a loan. You had to, I think, pay 50% down, then you paid interest only, and then you had sort of a balloon payment at the end. Uh, so you could imagine it was difficult, but that drive for everyone to own their own home continued, but it really didn't become successful until 1933 in the New Deal. Because of the bad economic situation, people were having trouble staying in their homes. So FDR created the Homeowners Loan Corporation, its main function was to help people stay in their homes. And so to refinance whatever they owed into 15 and then later 25 years. Uh, but to do that, they had to assess the risks, sort of, you know, a bank. Basically, they're the federal bank. And this is when the first 
when the first use of redlining, or have people heard that term before? I had heard it, and I'd always thought it was a private bank initiative. The first organization to do it was this homeowners loan corporation. Well, high-risk areas were put in red, and anywhere, if there was predominantly African-Americans, even if it was middle-class African-Americans, they received the red color as well. And this happened in 1933. It goes on from there. The Federal Housing Authority was established a year later in 1934. It was actually to promote development and for new home ownership. This is really some of the strongest evidence against the federal government really pushing to segregate our cities. You know, the goals of this organization were to make housing affordable, ensure bank loans, but oftentimes they had a white-only requirement. They had an underwriting manual, and this is where he gets a lot of the evidence. It mandated same social and racial classes, discouraged loans in urban neighborhoods, uh, but promoted new suburbs. It favored mortgages where boulevards and highways separated races, and it also took into account school segregation. So this is, to me, some of the strongest evidence. In 1941, there was a New Jersey developer who wanted to do 12 properties to African-American, and it was denied, and the quote from the FHA was, no loans will be given to colored developments. In 1958, there's another example. A Berkeley professor bought a house, got a loan from the FHA, but he wasn't ready to move in, and he rented it to a colleague who's African-American. There was complaints made. The FBI ended up doing an investigation on this. Was this FHA loan procured under false pretenses? Did he just never intend to live there? And it was a way to allow this African-American to live in this white neighborhood. The FBI didn't find anything. They turned it over to the... U.S. attorney. U.S. attorney didn't prosecute. There was no law broken. They didn't find it was done under false pretenses. But the FHA blacklist him said that he would never be able to uh, apply for FHA loan again. So from the FHA, it goes on to the VA, which was created to provide homes after World War II. Uh, the VA provided, I think, half of the mortgages at that time. And one of the things he emphasizes, he said, it's not just the individual loans that really were the FHA did its segregation work. It was a lot of times the loans to the developers and requiring that developments be white only. He mentions Levittown, which was backed by FHA loans with 17,500 homes. That's sort of difficult to imagine that kind of, I mean, I hear a development of, of 15 houses, I think that's big, but 17,500, I mean, it was huge. It had to be all white. Uh, in St. Louis, a developer intended to sell to African Americans. The FHA denied financing. In Detroit, a developer applied for a loan to do a development. The FHA said it was too close to an African American neighborhood. So what the developer did was built a wall half mile wide, six feet tall, and then the developer was approved. It's just, it's difficult to say really. But again, this is sort of the strong evidence that Rothstein's presenting that the government had been involved in segregation. One of his frustrations with FHA is they justified this policy saying, well, that, that African Americans were a greater risk. And he said one problem with that is originally when they adopted it, there was no evidence of that. There was maybe evidence to the contrary that would actually help stabilize prices. But then he goes on to say it was basically a self-fulfilling prophecy. By doing it essentially as a sort of government spurred 
development to suburbs, it sort of created the white flight syndrome. And because African Americans weren't able to buy homes that created overcrowding situations, and the other point I forgot to mention with the exclusionary zoning is they were able to locate industry closer to African American neighborhoods. So he said those combinations created sort of slums which, which sort of further sped up uh, white, white flight. Real estate agents would go in and maybe sell one or two homes to, to African Americans and then say the Negroes were coming or, or something to that effect and panic the homeowners. They would buy them and then they wouldn't sell them to uh, an African American. They basically kept them in sort of a rent to own which often led to evictions. One of the main points of that is that African American communities really couldn't build equity the same way white families could in the new suburbs that were backed by these mortgages. And that's essentially where the federal government was investing, you know, in the suburbs. And it caused the inner cities to turn into slums, is what uh, is the word he uses. And he says he, he doesn't think people should shy away from saying that. There's a chapter on local tactics. This is where, serving on somewhere like council, you could see uh, the potential for a lot of these things happening. Sometimes if there was a mixed uh, development proposed, essentially the council or the local board would just rezone the property just make it industrial. Sometimes they would condemn it, uh, make it parkland. Once there was a, a mixed development proposed, and all, they, all the, the local board did was increase the minimum lot size from six to 8,000 square feet, making it financially unworkable. Deny sewer lines, uh, change density requirements, use the local unions against them. Uh, there's a long part in the book about violence that police didn't do anything about. Essentially mobs of hundreds of people, no arrests made, essentially local government allowing this type of action that increased segregation. And, and one of the, the big examples is sort of local along with federal, and this is sort of where it touches closest to home in Knoxville from what I'm familiar with, was about highways and urban renewal. And the federal highway system, he makes a case it could do two things. It was sort of used as slum clearance when it was put through cities, predominantly through African-American neighborhoods. And then also, it's not a six-foot wall, but it creates a similar type of barrier if you're trying to segregate. Uh, I think everybody knows there was a lot of urban renewal here in Knoxville. I've got an old map from 1947 a, a friend gave me after I was elected, and it's, it's amazing to see if you think of downtown sort of as a grid, the grid just continued east for a little bit. I mean, it was sort of hemmed in by the river, uh, but it was all grid, and that was uh, really the heart of Knoxville's African-American business community, and there was a lot of displacement. He talks about Ferguson was essentially a neighborhood created from displacement. I, I can't remember if it was a highway or the, the, he talked about where the arches are. That was a predominantly African-American neighborhood that was you know, basically taken over for this. So uh, those were some of the local tools he mentions. Towards the end of his book, uh, he talks about looking forward and looking back, talks about the Fair Housing Act in 1968. He says that since that time, he thinks most of the segregation is sort of what he refers to as de facto. It's not as much government action uh, as it was before 1968. And I think this is, to me, one of the, the weaknesses of his point, because he talks about, I mean, he emphasizes that schools are more segregated now than they were 40 years ago. Uh, 
you know, it seems like since 1968, that's 50 years, you know, we should have made more progress on uh, residential integration if the government isn't acting. He gives some other reasons why. Essentially, he says it's about economic inequality. And since sort of the 70s, wages for middle class workers have stagnated. Home prices, especially out in suburban rings, has continued to go up. And essentially, it's become an economic issue. He says it's hard to undo for a number of different reasons. He talks about, you know, if you have a segregated water fountain, well, you can lift the sign or, or change the law, and the next day, you know, everybody can use it. But with uh, residential, it's much more challenging because you pass the law and people still live where they do and are still subject to their financial limitations that they were before. Uh, he talked about median income for African Americans. I'm not sure what year this is, it's 37,000, and for whites, is 60. So there's a big disparity at 60%. But what he really wants to emphasize is that uh, household wealth for whites in the United States is 134,000. For African Americans, it's 11. And he says that's just proof of the inability over time for African Americans to gain equity and value in their homes where most families have their wealth. So he really emphasizes the fact that the first step is for people just to acknowledge this. And then he says, well, because the most of the fixes I would propose are you know, politically unpalatable unless you know, people change. Uh, their mind, and he talks about school books, and he goes into a couple that just don't even mention this. And then, he, of course, he talks about the Supreme Court that won't acknowledge it. And so I think his real emphasis is that he wants uh, the public to understand the government's role in this. In terms of looking at, at Knoxville and the zoning code update, I think it's just important for us to think about these things as we decide them. How, how, you know, where did, where did we come from on this and where are we going and how will this impact people? And I believe, and, and the people I talk to that have pushed the zoning code update are doing it to take a step in the right direction in terms of promoting more mixed income to breaking down exclusionary zoning and those type of issues. I think it's good, uh, and I'd, I really appreciate everybody coming today to take time out of their, their day to uh, listen and discuss this issue. We, I guess that shows if you stumble enough, people just clap. <laughs> All right, there's a, there's a microphone here, so, so I think we'll... If you want to go, go hey, ahead. Hey, Mr. Steyer, uh, when the highways were put through the middle of Knoxville a generation ago, the Beck Center calls that urban removal rather than urban renewal. Mm -hmm. And there were hundreds of African-American-owned houses and businesses displaced by that. Now, in our day, Magnolia Avenue is being developed, and a lot of longtime tenants, both house renters and businesses, are being displaced. I've heard that the city is talking about building affordable housing. So the question for me in the light mm -hmm. of this book is, do you feel that that's a tricky question? Should affordable housing, because a lot of people need it, should that be built in more African-American neighborhoods mm -hmm. or in more white neighborhoods or what? Do you have a, an opinion about that? Well, well, Rothstein, he didn't talk about it at great lengths. There's an interesting question and answer section in the back of the book 
uh, but he talks about gentrification, and he said that, you know, in the real, real short term, he talks about it as a positive, because you do get some mixing, but he said in the long term, it's not very effective, because essentially it's displacement. If it happens to the extent that uh, the people that, that live there are unable to stay, the remedy to this is for inclusionary zoning, which is outlawed in Tennessee, which, you know, would require certain developments to retain a certain number of low-income units. So I think this is the challenge for our city and for cities like Knoxville all across the country, is how, as people return to the city, are returning to the urban environment and wanting th that lifestyle, how can we do this in a way that's just not another displacement, another, if this book was written in 40 years, another chapter? You know, Knoxville's like a lot of cities. We right now have a, an affordable housing shortage as well. And what he talks about also is he says that the two main tools government have now about housing are either to build affordable housing, and he said that usually happens in already, you know, African-American or segregated neighborhoods. And then he also talks about Section 8, and he said, you know, vouchers are mostly used in African-American neighborhoods. You know, he proposes one fix would be to require all landlords to accept Section 8. You raised a good point. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you for giving a, a good overview of what I found to be a really excellent book, a very <laughs> thought-provoking book. I wanted to mention one that is thought-provoking but not nearly as well-written, uh, Moving Toward Integration, The Past and Future of Fair Housing. This is chewy darn stuff. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm dipping into it at night it helps me get to sleep. Uh, <laughs> but it does have a couple of chapters in the back that attempt to digest some of the chewy sociological stuff that the mm -hmm. earlier chapters have done. Solutions that can be adopted by municipalities to encourage both class and race integration uh, for example, subsidized loans or subsidy for mortgages for people moving contrary to the predominant ethnicity in a... Uh, right. He, he, yeah, and Rothstein mentions that as and well as a potential. So there, you know, there are some tools that mm -hmm. I think right. we need. Right, right. Thank you. I think one thing about Rothstein what makes this book, uh, is it, it is a lot of stories. And, uh, you know, like The Wall or like Levittown, it's, it's very specific incidents, which I think makes reading it, you know, enjoyable. Hi. I just want to thank you for suggesting this book. When I moved to Knoxville, I was, I'd been working with a lot of other people. Our concern had been fair housing, and this was in Ohio. That was a big part of the civil rights struggle of the late 60s, mm -hmm. was fair housing. And when the Fair Housing Act got passed, we all sort of subsided. Recently I read, to my dismay, and it was an eye-opener for me, that it was never enforced with the banks. And until very recently, the last couple of years, I don't know, but I want to say that we're just inured to the mm -hmm. system that we grew right. up in, some of us. And so we don't see things that are right in front of our face. The one example he kind of gives of as, you know, recent history, he called it reverse redlining, where the subprime loans were targeted towards 
poorer areas in African-American neighborhoods. When the crisis of, of 08 and 09, the number that African-Americans homeownership declined steeper than the white population. So I think that's one example. And he cites, uh, and I guess it came up through some lawsuit with Wells Fargo, that an employee referred to him, the subprime loans as ghetto, ghetto loans. And so it's, it's sort of one of his uh, examples that's thrown in from, from recent time. Um, the origins of zoning, this is what I learned back in the 70s, and maybe this is not applicable anymore, but the origins of zoning were to have exclusive uses, like residential, industrial, et cetera, which we still have. Right. But it wasn't necessarily to keep within, the, within a residential district. You might have renters, uh, multiple family dwelling units, et cetera. So it wasn't exclusionary in that sense. In, so by, again, back in the 70s, I was in Massachusetts, they were enacting something called the snob zoning law. That term really resonated, because there what it meant was that these are going to be large lots, two acres. And who could afford two acres other than people who are very rich? So that was an example, truly an example, uh -huh. of exclusionary residential zoning. So a question which is relevant to Recode mm -hmm. is, are we looking for, I assume not, for everything to be mixed use, which is what it used to be back uh, before zoning was instituted in the early 1900s? Presumably not. Some mixed use, but still maintaining those separation of uses, but enabling more affordable, different types of housing within the residential districts. Is I, I assume where, right. you, where you're going with this, right? Yes, that is correct. So, yeah, when people are talking about mixed use, so if you have commercial and residential happening on the same parcel, that would be, you know, mixed use. Or if you had manufacturing and residential on the same uh, parcel, that would be, or even office. I guess to answer your question, the zoning code update, it's going to improve the code, but it's not going to be a, a radical departure. Mm -hmm. Cities across the country are doing it. But we've already taken the first step in mixed use, which is allowing housing in commercial districts. And this is something that's bothered me uh, since being on council. You know, in Knoxville, it seems like we build our apartments on ridgetops. And then people say, why is no one riding the bus? And then where the, the buses are going up and down our commercial corridors, right? Well, we don't even allow people to live there. So, I mean, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems like the logical step is going to be to allow, you know, residential on quarters. I mean, this is where our, our public transit is. And this is another thing Rothstein states, besides just the building of highways, the subsidy of highways has had an adverse impact on the African-American community. Because mm -hmm. as the economic opportunities went outside, if you didn't have a vehicle, it was hard to access those uh, without a similar type investment in public infrastructure. So I'm not sure if you, that answers your question. It does. Thank you. All That's right. good. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, in the preface of the book, it tells me that private discrimination would have been considerably less effective had it not been embraced and reinforced by government. And when I look at Recode Knoxville and everything that's going on with mm -hmm. land use, that resonates in the back of my mind. Everything that appears legal and right is not necessarily legal and right. 
one thing the author also says is that segregation has not been remedied. And then I want to leave this thought with you from chapter one. Uh, it tells me that if you inquire into the history of the metropolitan area in which we live, or you live, and that's here in metropolitan Knoxville, you will find ample evidence of how the government, state, and local governments unconstitutionally implemented housing policies to create or reinvent segregation in ways that still exist. So I would encourage everybody that's here from your interest in this book to also show some interest in Recode Knoxville, what's happening to your Metropolitan Planning Commission and other people's positions, the NAACP and other people's positions on Recode Knoxville mm -hmm. before you actually make a decision. It's my understanding that the second draft has gone out, has, has been published, but not necessarily given to the public. If you want to make comments on that, that's fine. For a lighter reading, there's another book that's an adult mystery called The Color of Law. Read it. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, and those are points well taken. I think cities, you know, if you think about our country, cities is, is where great things are happening, you know, in terms of economically. To me, you know, it's people coming together for cultural and economic exchange. And I think people that really understand cities know that happens best when there's a diversity of backgrounds, races, incomes mixed together. That's what makes cities successful. So, you know, I think a, a lot of cities are wrestling with this and Knoxville's as well. I'm Louise Gornflow on the housing committee of the NAACP. Thank you for being the kind of person who would select this kind of book to read and, and report on speaks well about our city to have council members do Well, that. I told them I was doing a book report and they said, you wrote a book? <laughs> I said, no, I read one. <laughs> so the, um, the housing committee of the NAACP has a position on exclusionary zoning as it affects the predominantly African-American neighborhoods. Our concern is that, that those neighborhoods which are currently zone for um, single-family detached housing will continue to be that way, mm -hmm. which would deny, by law, construction of affordable multifamily housing mm -hmm. in those neighborhoods. And when we talk about multifamily housing, we're not talking about high-rises. We're talking about two-family houses, townhouses, duplexes. We're talking about small multifamily housing, which is also called workforce housing. All of that housing is, is where people of lower income and people who earn less than $50,000 a year, that is the kind of housing they can afford to live in. Single family detached housing is beyond their capability. Mm -hmm. And so if we zone um, those communities of, of the old suburbs, only single family housing, we are essentially putting in force, legally enforcing gentrification. So on the front table, there is a white paper that the branch has released. And also, we have an affordable housing study group that meets every other Tuesday. And if you're interested in being notified about that, I'm going to put that at that table as well. And you will receive an email 
reminder of those meetings. And again, thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your comment. Hi, I'm Dean Novelli. I'm the Lamar House Bijou Theater historian. And I did not get a chance to read the book. It seems to be very popular with the library and has been checked out. <laughs> but I have just finished reading another book that I think touches upon this and that we all need to take a look at when it comes to talking about public policy. And that's called Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racism in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's by an African studies historian named Ibram Kendi. And he goes back to Jamestown 1619. I mention it because they believe they found Sir Yardley's bones there this week. He is one of the earliest and largest slave owners in the United States. That's where it began at the first founding. Mm -hmm. And Kendi would argue he doesn't directly address this, but he would say that all of these zoning and government policies are discriminatory, mm -hmm. whether they're racial in origin or gender or income or ethnic or religious, they're all discriminatory and you need to understand where that's coming from. He addresses it from racism. Racism, the discrimination was there to begin with and that the policy was formed to enforce it. And that's why we continue to have the issues we have of mm -hmm. discrimination and as a local historian, I'll, I will make the observation that uh, Sequoia Hills was a restrictive development. Many mm -hmm. of the uh, small developments there had restrictive covenants in it. No Jews. A textbook example of the federal government's imprint on housing is Oak Ridge, Tennessee. There is Scarborough, which was created only for African Americans. And if you don't know this, there were a tremendous amount of African Americans who came to Oak Ridge for work during mm -hmm. the war. And that community still exists. Its residents fought with Oak Ridge residents for mm -hmm. African American rights. They were involved when the Clinton schools were integrated but Scarborough still exists as an African-American community. Yeah. As a realtor, I want to say two things. Number one, I've been a realtor for 30 years, and I have seen great improvement in the understanding and the compassion of realtors toward fair housing. Mm -hmm. I was in ethics class this week because we're all required to go because no matter how many times we go, they still think we don't have enough ethics, I suppose. Uh, but there is emphasis in the realtor community for fair housing. Yeah. I would Thank also you. add, because I worked through the foreclosure crisis in Knoxville and Knox County, and low-income mm -hmm. communities were devastated by subprime mortgages in this community. Yeah. And when you drive through and you see a house boarded up now, it likely is a result of that subprime crisis. Right, I agree, it, it is sort of interesting just being on council. The council before me, you know, one of their main issues was blight, you know, essentially trying to stabilize neighborhoods to bring in investment, and very quickly now we're dealing with unaffordability is the main issue, and it's, it's remarkable how quickly that's happened. Got one well, person oh. I wanted to thank was uh, Bob Booker. We met earlier this week. He's our local historian that is an expert, unlike me, and he's a great resource. I appreciate you meeting with me. Thank you for bringing it all to our attention. All right, thank you.
Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.